Let me invite uh, the rest of us to stand um, in honor of God's written word. Today, Craig will be preaching through Nehemiah 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there, there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they promised, had, as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and empty. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who, come, who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds. And every ten days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Craig. I'm one of the elders here. Thankful that you all are with us this morning. Just a brief note, if you um, if you showed up today and now you just found out that there's a picnic afterwards, we'd love to have you join us. You don't have to RSVP or anything. Just show up and eat the food and hang out. I'll try to beat me at feed bags later. I'm not very good. That's not true. You can beat me easily. All right. Um, I'll tell you a story. I'll get this out of my way. 
last Sunday, drove home after church, pulled up to my house, and my car, my purple car that has survived many different things, including that fire, some of you explosion, some of you may remember that story, I'll tell you another time if you don't. Um, my car was on the side of the road, parked in front of my house, and there was a woman whose car was parked on the other side of the road, and she was kind of circling my car with that look, you know, kind of analyzing it, and I'm thinking, oh, great. My poor purple Buick. You've lasted so long that maybe she's been smashed and beat up, but she did not hit my car. She was just looking very closely, and I said, hey, what, what are you doing? Did you hit my car? She said, no, I didn't hit your car. I just lost something. Oh, you lost something. Why don't you, what is it? I can help you look. And she kind of hemmed and hawed and didn't say anything. I said, you know, if you just tell me what it is, I can, I can help you find it. She said, well, it's my weed, my pot, my marijuana. She, she had put it on the top of her car and she had driven off and it flew off the car somewhere near my car. Now, I was a little disinclined to help her at that moment. <laughs> well, I did, I did help her try to find it. We did not find it. Um, we did not. Uh, so could you see some marijuana laying in front of my house? It was not mine. I swear. <laughs> she drove away, and I was just thinking about her for the rest for the rest of the day. I mean, it's one of those stories that sticks with you, right? I was thinking about her. And I kept thinking, you know, what's going on in her life? What's going on in her heart? What makes her want to smoke weed? What makes her tick? What's heavy on her right now. Who is she? What's her story? And then thinking about us as a church, people who are entrusted with the work of God, how do we, how do we reach people like that? How do I reach people? Um, not only her, but people like that. People who are so different from me in a city. That's just one example of someone who feels so different from me. Different values, different lifestyle, different background. Maybe some of you can identify with her. That's great. Maybe some of you can't. There's how do we reach these people? We, God's people, and Tony was talking about this earlier, we're, we're God's house. We're here to do God's work. We're part of God's building project to build his kingdom by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ that all who trust in him would be forgiven of sin and made part of that spiritual house, part of the family of God. And I want people like that woman to be part of God's spiritual house. I think if you know Jesus and you experience the grace of him in your life, you also want other people to be part of that house too. And not only her, but the, the 10,000 other people, hundreds of thousands of other people in the surrounding cities around us. We want them to hear the gospel. We want them to know our Savior. I want people who aren't like me, people from other races, people from other ethnicities, people younger, people older, to know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In Nehemiah, what we've been looking at, we've been looking at God's building project, doing God's work. They faced obstacles and opposition. Opposition all around them, obstacles all around them. We face obstacles and oppositions when we do God's work too. All around us. And it's easy to take those obstacles and opposition and look at them all around us and really fix our attention and our emotion to those that are outside of us. But I actually don't think, either in Nehemiah's time or in our time, that the greatest obstacle or opposition to our work is outside of us. I think that the greatest opposition 
to God's work often comes within or from inside of us. That's what we see unfolding in Nehemiah 5. That's our text for today. The opposition had come after them from the outside. It threatened to stop them. And God overcame everything that stood in their way. What did he overcome? Kings, money, officials, famines, dangerous journeys. All of that bows down to the sovereign Lord of all. But now they they face perhaps their greatest threat of all themselves. What we're going to see today is opposition to God's work from inside God's people. But there's a leader who puts himself on the line to make sure that God's work is accomplished. But let me ask you this. What does that have to do with you? Me, today. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of God's work and you're needed here. We've talked about that. You have a role to play here. There's good in the deepest sense of good. Eternal, globally glorious work for you here in this faith family. Forces outside of us oppose that. And forces inside of us, among us, and even in our own hearts oppose that. So what will you do when the opposition comes? Not only from outside, but from inside. That's what I want to address with you. That's what I want to look at with you. That's what God's word wants to speak to you about today. So let's ask him for help. Let's dive in. Lord, speak to us. We do need manna from heaven, food from you, food that nourishes our soul and grounds us and strengthens us today. Because, Lord, we want to do your work. And when we look around us, it feels like we're opposed everywhere. When we look inside, it might even be worse. Come and feed our hearts now with truth and hope and strength. Fill us with your spirit. Thank you that you are a God who does these things. Thank you that you are accomplishing your purposes. Thank you that we have such a great hope. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's get our bearings just real briefly in the book. Um, Israel had fallen into sin, and as part of a judgment from God, they were thrust into exile. They were hauled off from their homeland nearly a thousand miles to Babylon. They're captured there against their will. They're forced to work for a, for a godless nation, well, at least not God of the Bible, honoring nation. And then another, another country, Persia, comes in and conquers Babylon. And when that switch happens, God miraculously changes the circumstances and sends Israel the Israelites back to Israel to rebuild. God is accomplishing what he promised. This is something that he promised long before it ever even happened. They come back, they rebuild the temple. Then God sends Ezra with his good word to guide his people into what is true. And then he sends Nehemiah to rebuild that wall. Rebuild the wall around Israel. God's purposes of restoration are coming together. And let's pick it up. In our passage today, verse 1, I'm just going to read this part of it. Verse 1, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So Israel, by this time, in Nehemiah, is working on the wall. They're, they're ready for any attack around them. If you remember from the passage last week that Nate walked us through, they have their swords strapped to their sides. They're ready for any opposition that comes at them. They're diligent. But not, they're diligent against the enemies out there, but not so much about the enemies in here, inside. 
Now, the word that's used in verse 1 is outcry. If you were an Israelite at that time, if you're an Israelite really at any time, outcry is like your trigger word. You hear outcry and you think trouble, big trouble. What their mind, if you were an Israelite, what your mind would go back to is Egypt. They were slaves. God sent Moses. They worked, he worked some powerful judgments upon the nation of Israel, of Egypt, and he brought Israel out. So now they're no longer slaves. They're free. They're free to worship God. They're free to obey his commands. They're free to be who they were meant to be. God had set them free. He had redeemed them. He had brought them out. And the outcry in Nehemiah, though, if you, if you just listen to what Tony was reading to us, it, the outcry is actually coming for similar reasons. It's because of oppression and slavery, because the people of Israel are being taken advantage of. They're being used. Here's what's going down. There's a food shortage. And that food shortage leads to a money shortage. There's not enough food to feed everyone, and there's not enough money then to pay the king's tax. What's not clear is whether those shortages are coming because people are working on the wall or not. But regardless, the solution that is offered by the Israelite officials and the nobles is, is this. It's mortgage your fields, go into debt to me, the officials and nobles, sell your children to me as slaves. Instead of helping one another, so this is all happening inside the nation of Israel. Instead of helping each other, the people of Israel are being taken advantage of by their own people. Have you ever been truly hungry? Have you ever wondered where the next meal was going to come from or how you're going to eat that day? For the majority of Americans, especially living, living right now at this stage in history, we likely have not experienced that. Nevertheless, there are many around us who do still experience that here and certainly around the world. It's a difficult and vulnerable spot to be in. But then to take those feelings of hunger that a person is, is experiencing and use it as a means of control it's like dangling the carrot in front of the person just out of reach to get what you want. That's what we see in, in Nehemiah chapter 5. That dangling of the carrot and not really giving it to him. Give me what I want and I'll give you this. That manipulation, that control that comes from hunger, we've seen that in our own his, in the own history of our, of our country. Chattel slavery in the United States used that kind of manipulation and control. In order for to control slaves, the slave owners would withhold food. They treated men and women and children as animals or as objects or as tools. And one person that I was reading about this this week was Frederick Douglass. Listen to what he says. I think the quote's going to be up here on the screens for you. He said this about hunger. I have often been so pinched with hunger. So Frederick, Frederick Douglass himself was a slave. I have often been so pinched with hunger that I have fought with the dog for the smallest crumbs that fell from the kitchen table and have been glad when I won a single crumb in the combat. Douglas experienced this control via hunger firsthand. Hunger breaks people. It puts them in a place of great vulnerability where they can be taken advantage of. In Israel's case, some with wealth or power 
Some, not all, but some, seize this moment to prey on the weak and vulnerable in their position of weakness. They lock them into debt, which makes them lose control over their fields and over even their own children, losing them to slavery. They put themselves, their interests, their desires above others. Now let me ask you this question. Do you think you do this? Honestly, when I first read this passage and I thought, okay, do I do this? I think, no, I do not enslave people. I do not exploit people. I don't take advantage of people. At least I don't think I do. I care about people. Let's peel back some layers here. What are these wealthy leaders doing again? They are using the people to gain for themselves. To gain what? Gain wealth and control. Why? Why would they do that? Something is driving those desires for wealth and control. The text doesn't explicitly say it, but they're humans. What are some reasons that humans desire wealth or control? They want security, financial security. They want more money so they can have more stuff, look good in the eyes of others for pleasing people. They want more control, so they want more power. What's going on here? What is this? What am I describing to you right now? What's going on in their hearts? What goes on in our hearts? It's It's idolatry. This is what got them exiled in the first place. And idolatry is not just bowing down to some golden monkey in the woods. That's not what idolatry is. Idolatry is anytime we value anything more than God. Idolatry is valuing anything more than God. Matt Chandler says that when we value something like that, when we when we worship something other than God, it's because we're doing two things. First, we suppress God's truth, what's true about him. And second, we question God's character. Let me show you what's happening here with the Israelites. The Israelites, they suppress the truth that God will provide. That God will give them what they need. That God is enough. They suppress that truth and then they question his faithfulness. They question his character, who he is. They're pushing it aside. So I have to, if we push those things aside, if, we, if I need to take care of those things myself, then I need to use these people to get that for myself because God isn't going to do it for me. What they're essentially saying is, and this, this comes from Tim Keller, they're saying, my life will only have meaning if, fill in the blank. My, I only have worth if, fill in the blank. I will only be happy if, fill in the blank. But what about you? What about you? What do you fill in those blanks with? My life only has meaning if, what? I only have worth if, what? I'll only be happy if, what? What is that? That thing is your idol. And if you worship dead, lifeless idols, because that's what idols are, that's, that's what the Bible says about them, you start to become like them. You become what you behold. You become like what you worship. And other people, if you're worshiping idols, other people become tools to get what you want. And 
then you enslave them. That's the way it works. It's true of all of us, and that is bleak. Bleak for Israel, bleak for our own hearts, but there is hope. And the hope is this. God sends an advocate. Watch what Nehemiah does. Watch what he does here. First, he listens and feels. Verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. He listened and he responded. He heard their outcry and he feels their pain. And then he thinks and prays. Verse 7. I took counsel with myself. He doesn't just impulsively respond in that anger. He takes it to the Lord. He takes it inside and he thinks. He considers. He calculates. He talks to God. And then finally he takes action. Verse 7. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And that's what rolls out in the, in, in the rest of the chapter. Chapter he, he brings charges against them. It's a violation of God's law. It goes all the way back to the time of Moses. God said to his people, those ones that he had brought out of Egypt, he said, you are free. You will not be enslaved to other people. You are mine. And that's why God hates that so much if we enslave other people. Nehemiah sees how their idolatry mocks God and dehumanizes people. And he isn't going to have it. He's not going to take it. He gathers a great assembly. He gets them all together. He calls them out. And he tells them to repent immediately. Verse 7. Or I'm sorry, verse 11. It says this very day. He makes them promise to return money, houses, fields, vineyards. And then he makes them make that promise in the presence of God and in front of the, the leaders of the people, the priests. Or else. Shakes out his garment. He said, that's what's going to happen to you. If you don't repent, you're going to get shaken out of the people of God's judgment. Everyone worships God and they agree to it. So what do we see here in this man, Nehemiah? What is going on? How would you summarize what he's doing? Have you ever been in a place of weakness or vulnerability and had someone stand up for you? Had someone fight for you? Stand beside you in your need? One of my favorite stories is the story of Jean Valjean from Les Mis. He spent time in prison. This is the beginning of the story. He spent time in prison for, for stealing food to feed his family. And when he got out, he found refuge in the home of a priest. The priest took him in, spent the night. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean wakes up and steals these expensive candlesticks from the priest's house and runs away. Well, the next day, the police capture Jean Valjean and take him back to the priest's house in handcuffs. And they say to the priest, we caught this man. He has your candlesticks. He stole them from you, and they expected to haul him off to jail. Haul him off to jail. The priest looks at Jean Valjean and says to the police that are there with him, "I gave him these candlesticks. They're his." The police leave. Jean Valjean is stunned, and he asks the priest, "Why did you do this?" And the priest looks at him and he says this, Jean Valjean, my brother, with this silver I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. 
Those are positions of strength. Standing up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. Positions of weakness. Those with resources or wealth or means. Using what they have. What they could use on themselves. The priest could have taken back the candlesticks. He could. He, they were rightfully his. Using them for others who do not have. Abolitionists. Those who helped out with the Underground Railroad, a priest in Les Mis, Nehemiah. These people are advocates. They advocate for someone. They come alongside. They stand up for those who can't stand up for himself or for herself. Nehemiah, who is he? He embodies the advocate. He listens. He empathizes. He responds, all the while putting himself on the line. He was in the position of strength and power and resources, and he puts it all on the line for those weaker than him. What fuels his his advocacy? What builds advocates? I think sometimes our instinctive response is, is that it might be love for the people, like Nehemiah really loved the people. And that certainly is a component of Nehemiah and other people who advocate for those who are weaker than them. But what drives Nehemiah's advocacy for the poor and needy in Israel, we find in verses 14 through 19. This is Nehemiah testifying that he didn't take advantage of his position over the people or leverage them for gain. He gave up those rights for the sake of the people. Could have kept them, but he didn't. Why? Verse 15. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Nehemiah's advocacy for God's people was fueled by fear of God. When men and women take on positions of power or riches or authority, whether it's religion or politics or business or education or whatever it is, wherever that, wherever that happens, the temptation is strong to believe that people below you can be used however he or she, the person in, in power, wants, or at least to get something for yourself. You know what not only corrects that, but actually empowers advocacy over the long haul? Remembering over and over and over and over whose power it is, who gives that power, and who can take it away. I recently heard this, this little story. Some of you may remember the name Jim Baker. He, was a, he, he had a television-based, supposedly Christian ministry in the 70s and 80s. And during the height of his, his so-called ministry, he leveraged his position to take advantage of women, and to steal money. He went to jail for that. While he was in jail, someone visited him and asked him this question. Jim, when did you fall out of love with Jesus? When did you stop loving Jesus? And Jim Baker responded like this. I didn't fall out of love with Jesus. I loved him all the way through. And then the person asking him was totally bewildered And said, what do you mean? And then Jim said this. I love Jesus, but I didn't fear God. 
He was in a position of power and authority, but he did not fear God. So he used people as he saw fit. I think God's word really wants to press two things on us this morning. When we look at Nehemiah chapter 5, two things that I just want to highlight and press from what we've studied so far. First is this, be an advocate. God wants you, follower of Jesus, to be an advocate. What we see here is a picture of a man, which applies to all of us, men and women, a man of God who advocates for those who are in need. Some of us in this room, we want to bury our heads to the needs of the world when it comes to pain and suffering of others. But that is not what we see in God. That is not what we see in Nehemiah. And if we are to do God's work, we have to recognize that this world is full of people who are crying out. There is a great outcry in here and out there. People need help. People need the church. People need you. How do we practically do that? What does it actually look like to be an advocate? I think that we have a really good model in Nehemiah. What did he do first? He listened and he felt. I've heard it said a lot lately that proximity brings empathy. You gotta get up close. You wanna hear the outcry. You wanna hear what's going on in their life. You You gotta get close. You gotta listen for those who are overlooked, who are oppressed, who are voiceless. We listen, we feel their pain. Second, we take counsel. That's what Nehemiah did next. We take counsel, we we pray about it. We seek out wise counsel from other people. We spend time crying out for God, Lord, would you please cause your justice to reign on earth as it is in heaven. Call down his blessings of justice. That is near God's heart. And you talk to others. You get wise counsel. You, 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 You take counsel with yourself. And second, third, you take action. Really important. Look, it doesn't it doesn't have to be me, Craig Cody. I, I don't have to be the one to take action. This is a call to all of us as God's people to take action on behalf of those who are needy. If you hear an outcry, do the very Jesus-like thing to do, the very Nehemiah-like thing to do. Respond, take action. And please, as you're doing it, like a heading over it all, like a dome over the top of it, please fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Don't let bitterness over the inaction of other people that you wish would do something grow in your heart. I think it's a really common thing these days. Humble yourself before God. Fear God. And step forward forward in this, working for others, knowing that it's near his heart. But how can we be an advocate when we struggle with our own sin, with our own idolatry. We, we often are the internal opposition to God's work. We are these leaders taking advantage of one another. We are not Nehemiah in this story. What do we do with that? How are we supposed to advocate when the problem starts in me and in you? And that's the second thing that I think God's word wants to press on our hearts this morning. First, be an advocate. Second, we have an advocate. 1 John 2.1 says this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
Jesus saw our total weakness and neediness. And it was weakness and neediness not because someone else took advantage of us. It was because of our own sin. Yet he felt our pain and our sorrow. He heard our cry. He made a plan to give himself and to take away our sin. And he did it. He took action for us. And you know what that means for us now? Those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you know what you have? You have an advocate. Dane Ortland in Gentle and Lowly, he, he gives a whole chapter to this idea of Jesus being our advocate. It, it's actually devoted to that verse in 1 John 2, 1. He describes Jesus being our advocate this way. Jesus shares with us in our actual experience. He feels what we feel. He draws near and he speaks up longingly on our behalf. Who is this advocate for? What does 1 John 2, 1 say? Anyone. Anyone. When will he advocate for us? Not we will have an advocate. It is, the Bible says, we have an advocate. And what difference does it make to our lives right now exactly? This is Ortland again. To come to the Father without an advocate is hopeless. To be allied with an advocate, one who came and sought me out rather than waiting for me to come to him, one who is righteous in all the ways I am not, this is calm and confidence before the Father. You know, Jesus being your advocate isn't something that happens like constantly all the time. It happens at times of need. And the time of need is when you sin. There's an if in verse 1 of John chapter, 1 John chapter 2. If you sin. So Jesus wants to advocate for you when? When you, when you specifically sin. This is another reason why the gospel is so beautiful. And so absolutely essential and critical to your life and my life. Once you become a, a follower of Jesus, it's not like sin just drifts away. I think all of us sin here know that. We sin small sins and we still sin big sins. But that is exactly what Jesus' advocacy is for. He stands up not for mere weakness or, or lack of money or power, though that is certainly near his heart. He stands up for your and my sins, for us in our sin. Just take a minute right now. Think about your life. Think about your areas of sin. Where you feel guilt, where you feel shame, where you just don't want other people to know about that, that thing, that thing that you're embarrassed about, your anger issues, your porn problems, your reliance on alcohol, your bitterness towards others, your gossip that you just can't seem to control. Portland presses us in this chapter in General Lowy to, to ask this question as we think about this. Who is Jesus for you? Who is Jesus for you? Not who is Jesus for you once you conquer that sin, but who is Jesus for you in that sin, in the midst of the sin? And John Bunyan gave this answer. Satan had the first word, but Christ had the last. 
Satan must be speechless after a plea from our advocate. In the song Before the Throne of God Above, um, there's this line where it says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. That's what Satan does. He accuses you, Christian. He accuses you. And we can often, I don't know if you do this, but I do this. We can often accuse ourselves. And that totally undermines the work of God in you and through you. It decapitates you. Those accusations are meant to maim you, to stop you, to stop the work of God in you and through you. And it's in those moments, you have to hear this. This is what Jesus does for us. It's in those moments when shame, blame, guilt, doubt, when that comes flooding in, that Jesus, our advocate, who comes alongside you in that sin, it's at that moment that he has the last word. Let's finish the stanza of the song. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. That's the final word. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free by God the just. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Do you know the advocate today? Do you know him sticking up for you in your absolute worst moments? It's true. He does. If you don't know him, I do want you to know him. I pray that you would turn to him in prayer, even right now, and give your heart to him and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to take away my sin. I want you to be my advocate. I want you to be my rescuer, my redeemer, my savior. And he will. He will do it. Nehemiah advocated for the people. They needed help. Nehemiah listened. He felt and he moved. Jesus, in a much greater way, heard our cries for deliverance from sin. We were dead in our sin. He felt deeply the pain and the loss of sin. He moved all the way to the cross to pay the penalty for sin. He is our advocate. And he has sent us into the world to tell us, to tell the world what he has done. The people, don't miss this, the people who make the best advocates are not only the people who fear God and know their proper place under his authority. The people who make the best advocates are those who know they needed an advocate and they have one in Jesus. So how do we do God's work when there's opposition around us and inside us? How do we help that woman who's lurking around my car after the service? How do we bless this city? It's all kinds of different people. How do we help those in the community who, and in the world who are voiceless or, or oppressed or face injustice? We fear God and we advocate for them. All the while knowing that we have one standing with us and for us. Jesus, our advocate. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come and stand next to us right now. Thank you that you are our advocate. We need you. We're so thankful that you stand up for us. We're so thankful that you silence the accusations of Satan in the world, our own sin, our own hearts. You have the final word. And Lord, 
knowing that we have been advocated for, we've been forgiven and washed, and we've been given a role, a job to do. Help us to go out in the world and do it for the sake of your name. Be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.